January 1965, McDonald's head office, Chicago. The accountants from Arthur Young look uneasily at each other. They've just informed McDonald's president, Harry Sonneborn, they won't approve the company's accounts. But Sonneborn is just staring into the middle distance. The head accountant repeats the message. So, um, yes, we're not going to sign off on the books. The method you're using won't fly with the New York Stock Exchange. Finally, Sonneborn responds. Well, our accountants say the method's okay. Maybe, but we have higher standards. Look, we're a large and prestigious accounting firm, and our reputation is at stake. You're counting future rental income from franchisees as income today. You know, that's not generally accepted practice. You'll have to redo the past five years' books. But we've only got two weeks to file the accounts with the SEC ahead of our IPO. Yes, that is a lot of work for you. But unless we approve your books, McDonald's initial public offering won't happen. Sonneborn spent a year preparing McDonald's to join the stock market. The IPO is critical to infusing the company with cash to stay ahead of Burger Chef and Burger King. Trouble is, Wall Street doesn't like McDonald's. The financial elite regard the company as a two-bit burger seller. Even getting investment banks to underwrite McDonald's IPO was a fight. Giants like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs refused to take McDonald's onto the stock market, forcing Sonneborn to settle for the less prestigious Payne, Weber, Jackson, and Curtis. But Sonneborn's in no mood to give up. Over the next two weeks, he and his team work around the clock redoing McDonald's accounts. Against the odds, they get it done and file the revised figures with less than an hour to spare. Wall Street's still not pleased, though. Revising the accounts has wiped $17 million off McDonald's reported assets. Stockbrokers warn Sonneborn that the opening share price is now too high and will scare investors away, but he ignores their concerns. Now, the fate of McDonald's IPO rests in investors' hands. What happens next is a big deal, and not just for McDonald's. If McDonald's becomes the first fast food chain on the stock market, it will define how Wall Street views its rivals, too. The question is, will the stocks fly, or will the leader of the fast food revolution come crashing down? Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana's diverse landscapes include dense timber forests and seafood-rich coastlines. And every step along the way, you'll find a business environment that's strong, diverse, and ripe with opportunity. Need proof? Louisiana is where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will soon put the first women on the moon. It's also where the port system delivers the most domestic cargo in the U.S. And Louisiana is home to the best workforce development program in the country. See what Louisiana economic development can do for you. Visit OpportunityLouisiana.com today. 
from Wondery. I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In the last episode, McDonald's found a lucrative edge by buying land and leasing it to franchisees. And Burger King reinvented itself with the Whopper, only to be overtaken by fast-growing rival Burger Chef. Now, all three are hungry for the investment they need to fuel their ambitious expansion plans. You're listening to Episode 3, Feeding Frenzy. 9 a.m., April 15, 1965. Inside the New York Stock Exchange, traders are in the pit preparing for another frenetic day of buying and selling. Watching them is McDonald's president, Harry Sonneborn. Today, McDonald's goes public, and he's here to make sure the traders don't forget it. He gives the signal, and a team of uniformed McDonald's workers head into the pit carrying trays piled high with hamburgers. The smiling workers fan out, handing warm burgers to the traders. Within a couple of minutes, their trays are empty. The pit explodes into a sea of shouting traders making hand signals. McDonald's stock opens at $22.50 and moves fast. Institutional investors might be snubbing McDonald's, but thousands of everyday people are clamoring to buy a slice of the burger chain. By the end of trading, McDonald's stock is up 33%. It's a fantastic start. Sonneborn does the math. He's now a millionaire, and CEO Ray Kroc is a multimillionaire. Going public transforms the McDonald's corporation. The company's still loaded with debt, but it's now got plenty of working capital. The days of scrimping by are over. McDonald's is a hot stock, and Sonneborn is the toast of Wall Street. And Kroc? Well, he's out of sight and out of mind. In 1962, Kroc moved to Los Angeles, and now he runs the company's operations from there. That suits Sonneborn. Sonneborn's not interested in the day-to-day mechanics of serving food. Hell, he doesn't even eat hamburgers. And now, emboldened by the successful public offering he's starting to think McDonald's should be run his way rather than Kroc's way. Summer, 1965. McDonald's franchisee Oscar Goldstein is visiting the chain's head office in Chicago. As co-owner of the Washington, D.C. franchise, the rotund and balding Goldstein is a regular visitor. But even so, a lot's changed since his last visit. Sonneborn has given the Chicago headquarters a makeover. The once bare floors are now lush green carpets. The walls are covered in dark mahogany paneling and expensive oil paintings. As Goldstein marvels at the transformation, a man with wild hair and hound dog jowls comes over. Oscar Goldstein? Yes, you must be Max Cooper. Cooper recently became McDonald's first ever marketing director. Goldstein's here to run an idea past him. On their way to the meeting room, Cooper spots the steel film real case Goldstein's carrying. What's that? Wait and see. Once in the meeting room, 
Goldstein loads the reel onto the room's film projector and turns the dial to on. As the minute-long color film plays, marketing director Cooper sees a chubby clown roller skating towards the camera. He's wearing a yellow and red striped jumpsuit and has a McDonald's drink cup for a nose. On his head is a tray-shaped hat bearing a styrofoam meal of hamburger, fries, and a drink. It's corny and poorly made. I don't understand. What are you showing me? That's Ronald McDonald, the hamburger happy clown. He promotes our restaurants in D.C. We created him in 63 after the Bozo the Clown TV show we sponsored got canceled. And now Ronald's a star in D.C. Whenever he appears in a store, there are huge traffic jams. Kids love him so much they pester their parents to take them to McDonald's. Well, whatever works for you. But you don't need my sign-off. You're free to do your own local ad campaigns. I think Ronald should be the national face of McDonald's. If he can do nationally what he did for us in D.C., we will own the kids and families market. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not happening. This ad, it's all right for a local campaign, but nothing more than that. Incensed, Goldstein marches into Sonneborn's office. Sonneborn listens with irritation as Goldstein makes the case for Ronald. You've got to take Ronald McDonald National. This clown works wonders. Are you nuts? Why would we want our business fronted by a clown? Here's why. Goldstein hands Sonneborn a set of financial reports. The numbers show how Ronald turned Washington, D.C. into a top-performing McDonald's franchise. The numbers are impressive. And Sonneborn loves impressive numbers. I see your point. Your new marketing guy thinks it's a dumb idea. Don't worry about him. We're using Ronald. That December, Ronald McDonald debuts on TV screens across America. Now, there goes Ronald and his flying hamburger. He's up! Winging his way to another McDonald's, where it's always fun to eat. But this isn't the Ronald beloved by the children of the capital city. The new Ronald's a skinny clown with a mop of bright red hair. He's got a new outfit, too. A yellow jumpsuit with puffed-out pants, knee-high red and white socks, and red clown shoes. But he's still a first-class salesman. Within a month, McDonald's sales are up 8%, and Ronald's on his way to celebrity stardom. Ronald's arrival caps a year of win after win for McDonald's. But things are very different for Burger King. March, 1966, Miami. Burger King boss Jim McLemore sits in his cramped office at the back of the Coral Way Burger King. He's just returned from New York City. He went to Manhattan hoping to start the process of taking Burger King onto the stock market, but got turned away. The Wall Street money men he met said Burger King's just too small, too inexperienced, and too undercapitalized. McLemore doesn't know what to do next. Burger King's falling far behind in the fast food real estate race. Burger King has 200 locations, but Burger Chef's got 500. McDonald's is even further ahead with 700 restaurants. McLemore knows Burger King must expand faster, but banks won't lend the company money. And now, a public offering's off the table, too. As he ponders the company's financial challenges, his phone rings. This is Burger King, Jim McLemore speaking. 
I'm calling on behalf of Ted Judge, Executive Vice President of the Pillsbury Corporation. Mr. Judge is coming to Miami and would like to have lunch with you. Three days later, the pair meet at a Miami Beach restaurant. After ordering their food, Judge gets down to business. How much do you know about Pillsbury? I know it's a big Minneapolis company that sells flour, dough, and other baking products. Well, essentially, we're in the eating at home business. But these days, people are eating away from home more and more. Companies like yours are driving the trend and challenging our ability to grow. So we want a piece of the eating out market, and that's why I'm here. We want to buy Burger King. You want to buy Burger Why us? Why not one of our competitors? Burger King's got the greatest growth potential. We also like the entrepreneurial spirit of your company. With your energy and our money, Burger King could become the leading burger restaurant. So, you open to selling? McLemore already knows his answer. Burger King needs the money Pillsbury can provide. He also likes the idea of a big payday. He's tired of living on his meager salary. Yeah, I'm interested. Let's talk details. But while Pillsbury and Burger King start forging an alliance, at McDonald's, an old partnership is in crisis. It's 8 in the morning, and Ray Kroc is angrily pacing around Harry Sonneborn's office at McDonald's Chicago headquarters. Yesterday, Kroc discovered Sonneborn has imposed a freeze on opening any new McDonald's. The two have been tussling for months, They've clashed over hamburger prices, battled over executive appointments, and butted heads over a new building design that drops the golden arches. The rift between Kroc and Sonneborn is tearing McDonald's apart. For Kroc, the freeze is the final straw. A showdown was inevitable, and now that day has come. Sonneborn arrives just after nine. By then, Crocs worked himself into a rage. Where have you been? You're the president of this company, not some nine-to-fiver. I do the hours I need to. Why are you here anyway? I'm here to unblock your freeze on new restaurants. Now is not the time to hit the brakes. Burger Chef and Burger King are expanding aggressively. We need to grow faster. Word on Wall Street is there's a recession coming. That means higher interest rates, and we've got heaps of debt. If we don't conserve cash now, Ray interest rate hikes could kill us. Nonsense. Our biggest threat is letting our rivals catch up. You'd know this if you spent more time in our restaurants and less time with your pinstripe pals. I don't need to waste my time checking how clean restaurant toilets are. The figures tell me all I need to know. That's your problem, Harry. McDonald's is about more than money. It's about being the best and giving people quality food they love. You know what your problem is, Ray? You pay no attention to the money. If you did, you'd understand why I'm doing this. It's the right call, I'm telling you. And as company president, it's my call to make. You might be president, but I'm the founder, the chief executive, and the biggest shareholder. I am McDonald's. You work for me. If that's the case, why don't you fire me, Ray? Maybe I will. No, you won't. Because I quit. Sonneborn storms out of the office, past shocked employees who've heard every word. Ten minutes later, Kroc also leaves to catch the next flight back to California. But by the time he lands at LAX, 
Crocs worried about how Wall Street will react to Sonneborn's exit. Croc brokers a truce with some sweet talking, and Sonneborn returns to the company. But the damage has already been done. As the months pass, it's clear Sonneborn no longer believes McDonald's can grow much bigger. He ends the freeze on new restaurants, but the company expands at a snail's pace. Sonneborn also sells the rights to bring McDonald's to Canada to two franchisees for a pittance. Finally, in January 1967, Sonneborn resigns again. This time, Croc accepts. Now, he can focus on crushing the competition with a growth-focused strategy. But Croc's in for a surprise because his biggest rivals are about to get some heavyweight backing. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off. Like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. January 20th, 1967. Burger Chef President Frank Thomas is at the breakfast table in his suburban Indianapolis home reading the morning paper. He swigs his coffee, turns the page, and nearly spits his coffee everywhere. Gah! Thomas's wife looks over. What's wrong? Pillsbury's just bought Burger King for $20 million. Oh, dear. Burger King's now got millions of dollars behind them. I'm already struggling to find enough money to keep Burger Chef expanding faster than McDonald's. The last thing I need is another rival flush with cash. Tom, you don't need this. Maybe you need to find a buyer for Burger Chef. Thomas won't need to search hard. Pillsbury's acquisition of Burger King sparks a corporate feeding frenzy. Rival food conglomerates jostle to buy hamburger chains. United Fruit snatches A&W. The Marriott Corporation claims Big Boy. Pet food maker Ralston Purina grabs Jack in the Box. Soon... Opportunities knocking at Burger Chef stores, too. It's August 1967, and Thomas is meeting George Perry in a downtown Indianapolis Burger Chef. Perry's a senior manager at General Foods, the owners of Jell-O and Bird's Eye Frozen Foods. And General Foods wants to buy Burger Chef. 
I've been reading a lot about Burger Chef, and I'm impressed. You're growing faster than McDonald's and with a fraction of the money they have. Your focus on small towns is clever, too. Lower rents and limited competition, right? That's the idea. Perry takes a bite of his Big Chef. The Big Chef is Burger Chef's signature burger. Two beef patties, melted cheese, lettuce, and a tartar-like sauce served on a toasted triple-decker bun. Mmm, I do love a Big Chef. Anyway, as you know, we want to buy Burger Chef. Why should we sell to General Foods? Because we both want Burger Chef to be number one. The market's changing fast. Your rivals are being bought by major corporations. That'll make life much harder for independent chains. Look at how fast Burger King is growing since Pillsbury bought it. With the backing of General Foods, you could beat both Burger King and McDonald's. Perry's pitch works. In January 1968, General Foods buys Burger Chef. Armed with General Foods money, Thomas is thinking big. He wants at least 300 more Burger Chefs to open in the next two years. That's a lot. It's as many restaurants as the entire Burger King chain and significantly more than McDonald's plans to open in the same period. But what Thomas doesn't know is that McDonald's has been planning a broadside and it's about to send a torpedo his way. It's early 1967, and McDonald's franchisee Jim Delegati is on the phone to McDonald's operations chief Fred Turner. Delegati owns several McDonald's in the Pittsburgh area. And truth is, business ain't great. Delegati thinks he has a solution, but he needs Turner's permission to try it. Fred, I'm telling you, a double-decker burger like the Big Chef will sell. Just let me try it. No way. The McDonald's system is about speed and simplicity. A bigger menu will slow service and threaten quality. Ah, come on, what about the filet fish We didn't have a fish sandwich before, and that became a big success. That's different. We did that to get Catholics eating in McDonald's on Fridays. Need I remind you about the hula burger? Delegati remembers the hula burger. Ray Kroc believed his pineapple slice and cheese sandwich would outshine filet fish Instead, it bombed. Sure, but we know double-decker burgers are popular. Just let me try it. If it doesn't sell, I'll never mention it again. Okay, but on two conditions. You only test it in one restaurant and you use it on regular buns. If it's not a success within six months, I never want to hear about it again. Deal? Permission granted. Delegati heads to the kitchen. He soon finds McDonald's usual buns are too small and turns his two-patty burger into a sloppy mess. So he ignores Turner and starts using bigger sesame seed buns. Delegati spends the next week perfecting the sauce, which he believes is the crucial ingredient of any double-decker burger. In April 1967, Delegati's burger goes on sale at Uniontown, Pennsylvania McDonald's. Customers soon spot the new option on the menu. Hey, what's a Big Mac? Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. Sounds great. Give me one. The Big Mac proves immensely popular with Uniontown burger lovers, prompting Turner to introduce it nationwide in 1968. Within a year, the Big Mac accounts for a fifth of McDonald's sales. It also undermines the distinctiveness of Burger Chef's Big Chef. But even the Big Mac can't stop Burger Chef's momentum. 
August 9th, 1969. Today, Burger Chef arrives in Treasure Island, Florida. Close to 100 people are here for the opening. Among them is smiling Burger Chef boss Frank Thomas. He's armed with a large pair of scissors and ready to cut the ribbon. I'm proud to declare this Burger Chef our thousandth restaurant open. Thomas grins as he cuts the ribbon. Burger Chef's now just 100 restaurants behind McDonald's, and it's opening a new one every 48 hours. At this rate, Burger Chef will overtake McDonald's within a couple of years. At last, Thomas's long-held dream of victory in the burger wars is within his grasp. Or so he thinks. On the next episode, the flame burns out at Burger Chef. Burger King lets customers have it their way. And McDonald's invents the fast food breakfast, opening up a new front in the fast food wars. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a link on the episode notes. If you tap or swipe over the cover art, you'll also see some offers from our sponsors. We hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. There's another way you can support us. Just answer a short survey at Wondery.com survey. And don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. We should say something about the conversations you've been hearing. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Emily Frost edited this story. Our editor and producer is Jenny Lauer Beckman. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez. For Wondering. Hey, I'm Mike Corey, the host of Wandery's show, Against the Odds. In our next season, I'm telling an amazing true story about American sailors who wrecked their ship off the coast of Africa in 1815. They're captured by a nomadic tribe. To escape, they will need to cross the largest hot desert in the world to reach civilization. They will battle against blistering heat, inhumane conditions, hunger, and thirst. Their heroic fight to get home will have a much greater impact than just on their own lives. It will influence a future president and change the course of American history in ways that are still felt today. This is the true story of the men who made it, and it's one that you don't want to miss. Subscribe to Against the Odds on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, The Wondery App, or wherever you're listening right now.